What famous adventurer's travels might have never been recorded if he hadn't been captured and imprisoned? Huh, I have to think about that one. And how long were Eva Braun and Adolf Hitler married? Answers to those and other very different questions <laughs> coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life with some fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. <laughs> tantalizing. Okay, Marsha, what famous adventurer's travels might have been secret, never heard of, if he hadn't been captured and imprisoned? That's where he wrote about his adventures? Well, sort of. That's uh, where he talked about his adventures. Uh... Tell me. It's Marco Polo. Oh, okay. Because when he returned to Venice after his adventure in China and so forth, he became a gentleman commander of a war vessel striving to hold off Genovese trailers. And his galley was captured and he was hauled to Genoa and he was jailed there. And it was during jail that a writer heard Marco Polo's stories and he insisted they be written down. Okay. And basically that guy did it. He said, you tell me these stories, I'll get them published. Opportunity so. was locking. <laughs> <laughs> Locking? Yeah. <laughs> yep, Marco Polo. If he hadn't been imprisoned, his stories probably would never have been written down. Very interesting. Did he ever get out? Oh, yeah. He went on to get married. He lived another 25 years. He became a wealthy merchant, had a wife, kids. Oh. He was a really interesting guy. You know, he was born into this uh, merchant family. His dad and his uncle had done a lot of business in China, and then they took him on a trip and they were gone for almost 25 years altogether. Oh. And uh, they served in Chinese government uh, for the Kublai Khan. They became great friends. Okay. And then he was sent on many diplomatic missions himself. Marco was throughout the empire. He went to Southeast Asia and places like uh, Burma, India, Indonesia, Vietnam. Yeah. And then um, traveled extensively inside China for 17 years. He saw a lot of things yeah. that had previously been unknown, came back, was thrown in jail. Got out in 1299, published all this stuff, and people didn't believe him. They thought it was a bunch of tall tales. <laughs> Died at the age of 69, and we know all that about him because all this was published. I mean, 1299 is a long time ago, you know. He didn't know that little kids would all be yelling Marco Polo in the swimming pool someday. What's that mean? That's a game that kids play. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, even our kids. And there's an app today called Marco Polo, yeah. which is a, a video app. Yeah. Video calls. Okay, Eva Braun. And Adolf Hitler, how long were they married? I think they were married just a short time. I thought they got married just before he committed suicide. Am I wrong? No, you're not. Yeah, they were together like 10 years, but they were married like for 36 hours before uh, they both did themselves in. Oh, dear. He did it with a shot in the head, and she did it with a cyanide pill. Mm. But uh, he was 23 years older than her, and she was like 17-year-old photographer when she met him. And uh, she really uh, had a thing for him and wanted to marry him and even tried suicide twice because he wouldn't marry her. Wow. <laughs> but uh, finally she got her wish and uh, they did it together. Okay. And as, as a little bonus, he said, let's get married. <laughs> hey, let's get married before we kill ourselves. Yeah, yeah. What a, what a doll. Oh, dear. Okay. Speaking Here. of killing, what word originally meant walking hospital? Pneumonia? No. 
I think a walking pneumonia. Walking hospital Walking now. hospital. Oh. It's a word we use all the time whenever we need to call because somebody got hurt. We have to call in. Emergency, 411, Ambulance. 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 Ambulance, 911. The first recorded use of ambulance was in 1819. The word comes from the French hospital ambulant, meaning walking hospital. Oh. But ambulaire... The Latin word means to walk. So a walking hospital, what does that mean? A mobile hospital that follows an army in warfare. They were first called ambulances, those tents where you'd have care for the wounded. And then during the Crimean War, the British started using ambulance as the name of the covered horse-drawn wagons that carted soldiers off the battlefield. So it evolved certainly over the years. To what we use today. Yeah. Basically, the ambulance is the vehicle yeah. that we call in case yeah. there's somebody who's sick or injured. But it originally meant walking hospital. Okay. <laughs> Curious. Okay, so, you know, I'm reading uh, Devil in the White City. Yes. The true story of the building of the Columbia World's Fair in Chicago and the uh, uh, serial killer who uh, ran amok in Chicago during the same time. This is the uh, Eric Larson book from a few years back. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, it's riveting on many levels. But anyway, here's the question. Why was the white city of the great Chicago World's Fair white? It's called the white city. Yeah, yeah. Why was it all white? Well, you know, I always thought it had to do with electricity because electricity was the wonder of the age, and they lit it up at night, and that was totally different. Nobody had ever seen cities that way. Yeah. So I would assume it was because of the night light. Yeah, well, that's a good guess. Okay. It's not right, but it's, oh. it didn't, it, all, it lent itself to the spectacle yes, that, that, was, uh, that was the white city. They did light it up at night, right? Yes. So I'm half right. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and <laughs> But what happened was they ran out of time to paint everything, and everybody was fighting, and there was no time left. And finally, somebody at the committee meeting, nobody knows who, said, let's just paint the whole damn thing white. Oh, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. You know, one color. Mono. So all the buildings were white because yeah, they, it, they, they didn't, didn't run have, out of paint. They ran out of time. time. Yeah, to do, wow. you know, all the this and that and the cornices. and But they painted everything white in the grand concourse there, and it was a spectacular. And then at night, with the white lights on it, it blew everybody away. Now, you told me as you're reading this that it was great pandemonium i mean this committee was disorganized there oh were all kinds of amazing that the fair even came off i don't know how it ever came off there were so many things to do and it had so little time to do it how all those buildings got built and i think it was nigerians arrived a year early oh <laughs> uh, that's right you told me about that yeah they were supposed to come for the exhibit and uh, they had the month right but they came a year early so they had to go to New York uh, and pick them up and bring them back and have them housed on the land somewhere to wait out the year. For they, a year. They had uh, they had all these people and camels and stuff and things to sell and it was it was a crazy time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, now what kind of drink would you bring to a party, Marsha? I'm giving you a choice here. A bottle okay? of wine. Wine, yeah. beer, spirits, flavored malt beverages, hard seltzer, or cider. Well, I bring wine. This is interesting. They did a study in 2021. The Harris Company did a poll of 2,000 adults to find out. You know, they asked, what would you bring to share at a party? And those were the six choices. Uh -huh. Wine, beer, spirits, flavored. Yeah. And it 
broke out differently by demographics, by age I'm groups. I'm sure it did. So I'm sure the cider was the millennials. Those over 65 said they would bring wine, right? That's mm-hmm. the overwhelming choice of baby boomers. And I'll explain why this happened in a moment. What about the Gen Xers, the people born between 1965 and 1980? They brought uh, beer, different ales and stuff like that. They were split between wine and beer. Uh-huh. Okay, then how about millennials? If you ask them, people born between 1980 and 1995, what would you bring to a party? Well, they'd bring the cider. Well, what are the choices? (laughs) No? No, you're all wrong. The millennials were evenly split among all top five options, and cider was the last. Oh, really? Yeah. Why the differences? Well, the researchers suggested boomers were drawn to wine as youngsters because domestic beer was pretty dreary back in the day. Oh, it was awful. Craft beer wasn't even a thing yet, and beer was made by these big companies, and they had watered it down. Spirits and cocktails were what? Their parents drank, baby boomers' parents, so boomers were drawn to wine with their many varieties and nuances, okay? Mm -hmm. Gen Xers grew up with a whole different world. Craft beers began appearing from hundreds of small breweries. Creative cocktails Uh started. Remember the movie Cocktail with Tom Cruise? Uh So Gen Xers like wine and beer. That leaves millennials, a bigger group with a longer future. Millennials have less disposable income, so they gravitated from expensive wine to craft beer and creative cocktails. Creative cocktails. And in 2022, the State of the Wine Industry report said because wine's primary users are shrinking or dying, (laughs) the baby boomers, and because wine producers aren't united in their stance on social justice and environmental issues, which are important to millennials, Wine sales could plummet by 20% in the next decade. Say it ain't so, Joe. This is from an article called Drink Up Millennials, Please, (laughs) from the New York Times. Okay. Well, very, very interesting. Okay, Bob, I have a question for you. Yes. Would you rather be a hobo, a tramp, or a bum? I would rather not be any of those things. Well, that's true. But there is a social ladder in that group. Okay. Tell me the difference. Okay. This is according to Wikipedia. So a hobo by definition, is simply a migratory worker who travels by jumping the rails. He might take long vacations, <laughs> but basically he works and travels the rails. So they're vagabonds, but they work. Yeah. Okay. They want to make some money. A tramp, on the other hand, never works if it can be avoided. He simply travels. Hence and, the name tramp, tramping around. That's correct. Okay, okay. And on the lowest of the social ladder in that group <laughs> is the bum who neither works or travels unless uh, prompted to by the police. <laughs> oh, like, like move along, yes, move yes, along. Exactly. So a bum doesn't do anything. They don't work and they don't travel. Right. A tramp travels but, but doesn't, doesn't work. Uh-huh. And a hobo travels and works. Uh-huh. Oh. So I guess in that threesome, we'd want to be hobos. Yes, I guess so. Okay. All right. Thank you for explaining that. That's why I'm here, Bob. Okay, Marcia, you know the name Nike, Adidas, uh, Puma, Reebok. You know those names. They're all big names in basketball shoes today. But how far back do basketball shoes go? Oh, well, as far as basketball, right? And I don't know when that started. Well, basketball started in the 1890s in Massachusetts. Yes, it was... uh, I think it was James Naismith, and he... Oh, put up the apple basket? Yeah, the baskets. They were, I think they were bushel baskets in a uh, gymnasium mm-hmm. in uh, Massachusetts, and that's where the game was invented. But basketball shoes came along a little later, 
And the Converse shoe company was one of the first that did them. 1917 were the first high-top sneakers for basketball. So it's over 100 years ago. Yeah. And Converse has an interesting background there because the guy who started that company, he fell on a set of stairs and decided, I don't want that to happen anymore. So he invented rubber shoes. Shoes with rubber soles to prevent future accidents. Well, see, now that's one of those profitability by accident stories. And that that led to basketball (laughs) shoes. How about that? Yeah. Okay, now, so who was Chuck Taylor? You've heard that name. I have. Our kid always wanted Chuck Taylors. Uh, He was a skateboarder Mm -hmm. and a basketball player. I will say, well, he must have been a basketball player. He was. You're right. He was an early basketball player. He's a 20-year-old professional basketball player who joined Converse as a... Basketball player. No, as a salesman. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He loved playing basketball, but he joined them as a salesman. trying to trick me here, Bob. No, no, no. Back in those days, they weren't celebrity endorsers of things. Yeah. So what he did was he became a very active salesman in the company, and he actually went out and started promoting the shoe by holding free basketball clinics for coaches and players at high schools and colleges. And he was so famous, people used to say, if I need a coach, I'm going to call Chuck Taylor. He knows people. And he would actually recommend people oh, no to, be, to be hired as coaches around the country. He was the go-to guy. But he did these things for free. And at the end of each one of these uh, basketball clinics, they'd go down to the local shoe store and get our Converse All-Stars. That was the name of the shoes. Uh-huh. You know, He became so famous doing this that guess what? The company decided, let's rename the shoes the Chuck Taylor All-Stars. And hence, that's how it all began, back in the 1920s. That's how long that name has been around. I thought that was just like around for 30 years or something. No idea it was that old. They uh, actually captured 80% of the market at one point. The NBA, the uh, NCAA, the U.S. Army, and the... U.S. Olympic team all wore Chuck Taylor shoes. So did Michael Jordan. He grew up with them. So did Elvis Presley. You can find pictures of Elvis wearing these shoes. And Kurt Cobain. So it went through all the generations. Quite a fan club. They uh, failed to capitalize on the 1980s craze for sports shoes. And they did go out of business. But guess who bought them? Nike? Nike. Oh, okay. Yeah, they call them Nike Converse shoes or Converse Nike shoes, but they, they kept the name Chuck Taylor. And today, they sell nearly a billion dollars worth of shoes with the Chuck Taylor label. So that's where Chuck Taylor came from. I thought he that lives was on quite people, interesting. He lives on, on people's feet. So how much money do you think he made from all those shoes? Uh, pro- he probably didn't make anything. He was on commission for sales, right? That's right. It wasn't like a Michael Jordan, Air Jordan thing. Yeah. But people who knew him years later said, hey, he loved his life. He was on the road 365 days a year. He lived out of hotels. He never owned a house. He was always selling Converse shoes, and he worked for them for 47 years before he retired. And he had an unlimited expense account. (laughs) So that's Chuck Taylor's story. Wow. That's quite a story. Never got married, never had a family, just lived in a hotel. And enjoyed it. Yeah, well, that's the key. If you're happy, you're happy. Apparently a very affable, fun person from what you read, too. Okay, Bob. Back in 2005, what animal escaped a Kansas City zoo and is still seen roaming the country today? Wow. (laughs) They haven't been able to catch this animal. No, they have not. Is it a dangerous animal? No, that's why it's still roaming. Oh, okay. Um, But it's very out of place in many places, including Wisconsin. Well, what is it? 
It's a large pink flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> when was this? When did it leave? 2005. So it's been 17 cited years. since that time? 17 years. His name is Pink Floyd. And, uh, pink Floyd. <laughs> and he is literally a free bird, right? Oh, gosh. And you got all the rock and roll references there. And he has been seen and documented traveling through such places as Texas, Arkansas, Wisconsin, and Louisiana, to name just a few. He's considered the longest living animal escapee around today. That is a long time. And that's a long time for a bird to live, too. And flamingo, they fly a little bit, don't they? I mean, this yes. guy got from Wisconsin to Texas. That's quite a journey. Floyd the Flamingo. Pink, Pink Floyd the Pink Flamingo. Pink Floyd, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Why did the Duke of Wellington oppose railroads in the 19th century? Ah, uh, well. Uh, now, remember, railroads began in Great Britain. I think Robert Stevenson started the first one and See, Went up from London North. He invented beef Wellington. Beef Wellington any, has nothing to do with it. Okay, no, tell me. Okay. Well, the Duke of Wellington <laughs> remembered in history for saying he disliked railroads because, to quote him, they encourage the lower classes oh, to move about. Oh, move about. Well, we can't have that. Oh, my God, no. Oh, what's wrong, Duke? Of course <laughs> you can't have that. Oh, look, there's a poor person walking across our lawn. And they're moving about. But is it a hobo? Oh, a tramp? Oh, here or? we go. Jeez. <laughs> oh, we need to take a break. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, uh, wait a minute. Let me, let me see here. Wait a minute. I have a break statement here. You do. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> and a clever one it is. <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marcia. Smith. <laughs> Did you write that yourself? Yes. Do you like that? <laughs> okay. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith, the podcast dedicated to insatiable curiosity and lifelong learning. Oh, God, where'd you come up with that one? Oh, Lord. Did you stay up all night thinking of that? I found that. I thought it was pretty good. Insatiable curiosity. All right. Okay. Well, Marcia, I have a question for you about um, a famous person, famous author, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh-huh. Now, he had a lot of great uh, works. Uh -huh. uh, invented a detective, one of the first detective series. Uh, what was Edgar Allan Poe's bestseller in his career? Was it a poem or a book? It was a book. Okay. Could have been a book of poems. <laughs> but was it? Was, was it really, Marsha? Was it? <laughs> no, it hark, wasn't. Hark, was it? Uh, okay, tell me. I have a feeling no matter what I say, I'm going to get it wrong. What okay, is it? Yeah, you won't believe this. Edgar Allan Poe's best-selling book in his lifetime was a textbook on conchology. Conch? What the heck is that? The classification of seashells. Oh, that's... <laughs> Can you no, believe that? No, that does not sound Poe-like. No, you know, he, we think of him for his dark fiction and so forth, and yeah. his poems, quote, the raven, nevermore. But with an engineering degree from West Point, he made much of his living reviewing books on science. That's where he got most of his income, was from that. And in the 1840s, the term science was barely 15 years old. No so, kidding. Yeah, brand okay. new field. Well, that's, that's uh, remarkable, actually. He wrote a book. <laughs> so I went, you're right, I could... Stay here for 10 years and when to guess that. A book on seashells. Okay, Bob, here's your presidential bone I'm throwing you, which okay. you'll probably know right away. How long was President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? Well, I think it was only about 
Two and a half minutes. Well, that's close enough. You win. It was well, about two. You. It was. <laughs> it was about two minutes, and it was less than two hundred and seventy-five words long. Isn't that amazing? It is. And uh, he gave it after the Union victory at Gettysburg, and he was on the dais with Edward Everett. Edward Everett. Edward okay. Everett, who was one of the famous orators of his time, and he spoke for two hours. Sat down. <laughs> And then Lincoln got up. It got up, spoke, spoke for, for two, two minutes, minutes, and sat and down. And everybody goes, what, what was that? It was, it's over. Yeah, immediate reactions to the speech were very mixed. Yes. But in the years that followed, the Gettysburg Address became one of the most important speeches in American history. Again, it's quality, not quantity. Packed in those 275 words was an amazing commentary. Well, you know, it's the 19th century. They don't have television, so they have to be entertained some way. Yeah. And so when people would get up and speak, it would be an hour, two hours of a talk. Did you know? they use puppets? Uh, I don't know if they use puppets. I don't think they did at Gettysburg anyway. Okay. But, uh, it probably wasn't appropriate. The most fascinating thing about the Gettysburg Address to me has always been that line about the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. And it was <laughs> <wrong>. absolutely wrong. <laughs> the world noted that. The world remembered it. I remember in third grade having to memorize the Gettysburg Address. Okay. I didn't. Yeah. And you had to learn the thing. And then it was like a test. You had to repeat it. And That's people good. got up and did it. That was a good thing to learn. It was. And it made us diagram. What is this about? What are these things? How much is four score and seven years yeah. ago? How many years is that? 44. 87 years. That's what I said, 87. 87 years. And you do the math, <laughs> that was when the Declaration of Independence was written. So 87 years ago, our forefathers brought on this continent a new nation. A new nation. All right, Marcia. Do your Abraham Lincoln impression. You're, you well, do it score on seven years ago. I don't and know it's, how he it's, Well, it's perfect. That's supposed why. to have had a high, kind of a high-pitched and reedy kind of a voice. Uh-huh. We talk like this. Yeah, so. he was long and tall. Four oh. score and seven. Well, now, Marcia, that brings to mind this question. Wait. Where does the word hooch come from for liquor? Hooch. <laughs> now, let me tell you, in my day... <laughs> I knew about a lot of hooch. <laughs> now, where does the term hooch, hooch come, come from? from? Well, that's a very interesting answer, and share it with us, Bob, because <laughs> I don't know. Well, it comes from Alaska, and here's the situation. U.S. Army soldiers were stationed in Alaska after it became a U.S. territory for many years. Okay. They just put the military up there because that's a new territory, and it's owned by us, right? Mm-hmm. They were forbidden whiskey, so they bought it from the Hoochinoo Indians. Really? <laughs> the Hoochinoo Indians who made their own. And by 1877, the soldiers in Alaska were calling all strong, homemade, or illegal whiskey Hoochinoo. Well, I love it. See, I, now I've learned a lot with that question, Bob. Thank you. And then during <laughs> the Klondike Gold Rush of the 1890s, that nickname was shortened to just Hooch. Yeah. So that's the story. That's where hooch, hooch came from. Hooch Aren't you glad you asked the question, yes, young Abe, lady? Yes, <laughs> that's, that's very uh, enlightening. Where, Bob, where is the world's largest desert? Not dessert. I know where your mind is going. Desert. <laughs> the largest dessert is... Uh, now, I saw something about this. I think I know the answer, but I don't know why, okay? I heard it's in a place you wouldn't expect. It's not in the Sahara... It's not in the great desert of the American desert. It's not in South America. Where is it, Marsha? It's in Antarctica. Who would think Antarctica would have the world's largest desert? And that is that because of the definition of what a desert is? Yes, dear, it is. <laughs> okay. And it's not the heat. 
it's the precipitation that oh. defines it. And so if your area receives less than 10 inches of precipitation a year, you are a desert. And the Arctic, which is 5.4 million square miles, has 6.5 inches of precipitation a year. That's it. That's it. And it comes in the form of snow. So uh, behind it is the Sahara and the Arabian and the Gobi. Uh, those are all in the top five, but Antarctica is the biggest desert. So who would have thought? Not because yeah, I always I always associated deserts with sun and heat. Yeah, but yeah. it's not. It's the lack of precipitation. And as long as I'm on Antarctica, okay, okay, as long as you're there, there's a lake there that never freezes. Why? Wait a minute. <laughs> How can there be a lake where there's a desert? Well, oh, okay. It's, it's just the precipitation. There. Yeah. <laughs> okay, a lake that never freezes, but it's in Antarctica. Boy, yes. you've got three different conditions there that it, just don't, they blow your mind. I know, that's why I'm it's here. It's in Antarctica, it's where there is a desert, and it's a lake. You do say, take a side road to crazy, don't you? Yes, I do. I take <laughs> okay. a side road. Uh, so I don't know the answer to that. Okay, all right. They have a lake in Antarctica called Deep Lake, hmm. and it is 10 times more salty than the ocean. Really? It's as dead as the Dead Sea. It's as dead as can be. Yeah. And so because of all the hypersalinity, mm -hmm. it, uh, it prevents almost all life forms from thriving there. Jeez. Although it is home to a collection of something called extremophiles. <laughs> extremophiles? Yeah, which are organisms that thrive in the most extreme conditions on Earth, which is like me in the kitchen or oh. something. <laughs> <laughs> that is an extreme condition. Yeah, Deep Lake is 180 feet below sea level, and it only gets saltier the farther down you go. Jeez. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I had no idea. I never heard of that before. Me either. All right. All right, Marcia, what famous American who was not blind preferred Braille to visual reading? Really, mm -hmm. really. Oh, wait, wait, this was a scientist, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, it was one of the big ones. Yes, it was. Einstein? No. Uh, the other guy. Uh, there are a lot of oh, them. Oh, there's only one other guy? No, there's a lot of okay, them. Okay, who else? Uh, Edison. Edison, it is. <laughs> Thomas Edison. He was not blind, but he preferred Braille to visual reading. And remember, he proposed to his wife in Braille. That's right. Yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah. Now, you have a last uh, word. You have a thought. I do. I have a quote. Okay, and then I have a famous last words. Oh. Who what? wants to go first? Um, you go ahead. <laughs> Don't shake your head at me, Mr. Fancy Pants. Prancy Pants. I'm not, my pants aren't fancy. <laughs> Come on. All right, what's the thought for the day? It's Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein? <laughs> Jeez. It's Al Einstein, okay? Okay. He makes the bagels <laughs> down, down the road. <laughs> okay, he said there are two kinds of people, those who believe everything is a miracle and those who believe Nothing is a miracle. That's probably true. What it's, do you What do you think? I think everything's a miracle. So do I. Yeah, even this show. <laughs> yes. Okay, here's the last famous quote, and it's kind of fun. This is Florence Ziegfeld, who was hallucinating in his final moments. He was the great showman of the I know who he is. 19th, early 20th century. Fanny Brace said, Flo. So these are his last words, and they're written with exclamation marks, so I'll read them the way he probably was reading if he was hallucinating. Curtain, fast music, light, ready for the last finale. Great, the show looks good, the show looks good. Really? And then he died. Wow, finale, lights, that, that's a good way to go out. It, has, it sounds like it was a good way to go out. I wonder what he was seeing in his uh, 
in his dying moments there. Maybe it was a wonderful, you know, extravaganza starring him. <laughs> <laughs> a good way to go out, and that's time for us to go out. Yeah. That's it for today. I'm Bob Smith. Great transition. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia <laughs> here on The, the Off Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.